Good morning, and welcome to Scarlet City Church. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, my name is Jay O'Brien, and I serve as a pastor here at Scarlet City, and as you can maybe tell from my voice, I have a cold, so if I start coughing, I'm sorry, Robert and Megan and Christine in the front row, I hope I, well, Megan, you're already sick with me, so you're good. Um, and uh, I want to invite you to open your Bible to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we close out this sermon series, The Power of Prayer, we began the first week of January. And uh, just a little heads up, Mike referenced the formation guide uh, in your bulletin. I'm going to be talking about that this week. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to take a little bit of time uh, during the sermon at, at the end of it to share a little bit about vision in this next season uh, for us as a church. And so we will get to that. I'm going to open, I'm going to uh, read our passage, Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. Jesus has, has just offered the Lord's Prayer, and then he says this, When you fast, do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, we opened up our sermon series the first week of January with a question. What do you do when the power goes out? Springtime is right around the corner. Storms will come. And if you live anywhere close to this building, in Columbus, then the slightest wind and the power lines go down and you will probably lose your power. What do you do? You need to get connected to a new source of power in order to have light. What happens when the power of your soul goes out? When the things that used to bring you joy, the meaning you used to feel, the relationships that brought happiness no longer do? What do you do when the power goes out in your soul. This is what we've been looking at. And, and really, it forces us to ask a question to that. And that is, what is the source that can lead to life and joy and flourishing? What is the source that we turn to to satisfy our heart's hunger? There are many things we're all tempted and prone to look to. For some of us, to satisfy our heart's hunger, we look to money and possessions. Thinking if we get the latest gadget, if we have enough in the bank account, if we've saved up for the future, then, then we'll find satisfaction. And to which Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, in Luke, he just says, blessed are the poor. It's not material wealth and possessions that will bring joy. Some of us, our appetite for our heart's hunger is for comfort. If we could just get all the kids to stop arguing and bickering, if, if our co-workers would just do what we ask, if things would just go according to the plan, then, then we could find some degree of peace and satisfaction to which Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. For some of us, our heart's appetite is for power and control. We think if everyone would just do what we want, 
if we could just be in control. We're prone to not buy into something unless we're the one giving the idea. To which Jesus would say, blessed are the meek. And some of us, when we think of our heart's hunger, it's for the appearance of godliness. If we could just do things and be noticed and recognized for doing good things, for fighting for justice, for praying, for doing good things for God, if people could just see our good works. You know, it's interesting, Jesus, if you haven't noticed, I'm recounting the, these statements of blessing that Jesus says in this Sermon on the Mount. And he says this. I found this really interesting. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then in the sermon, he goes to describe people who just want to appear righteous through their fasting, through their prayer, through giving to the poor. And yet their heart doesn't really hunger for it. Some of us, our heart's hunger is status and the appearance of doing good things. For some of us, our heart's hunger, what we're living for, the source that we're after for flourishing in life, is really what I would call our body appetite. Our body appetite. Typically in the church, we, we talk about our sexual desire. But another that's often not referenced in the church is food. For many of us, our, our hunger and the source that we go to is to just eat. Many of us have a complicated relationship with food. Now, if you'll permit me, let's, let's go there a little bit this morning as we think about what it means to find our satisfaction in God. Uh, some of us have a complicated relationship with food. Some of us are what we would call foodies. You don't need to raise your hand, but any foodies in the house, you know, just you're a foodie if you would not be caught dead going to Olive Garden. I mean, you might go, but you're not going to tell others about it. You won't invite other people. You, you know, you'll just eat at McDonald's alone. You're a foodie if you go to the local farmer's market. Even if you're not going to buy anything, you're just making your appearance so everyone knows, hey, you know, you're about this kind of thing. You're, for, you're pro farmer's market. If that's you, you might be a foodie. Now, Columbus, thankfully, we're re being recognized more and more for being a foodie city. This means we're, we're moving up in the ladder of uh, city status. There was a uh, food and travel magazine in San Francisco which recently wrote an article that was titled, Why Columbus is the Next Big Food City to Watch. Why Columbus is the Next Big Food City to Watch. Now, I, this makes me feel good. You know, Columbus, our, our town, we're always on this, like, the next thing. You know, it's like people in San Francisco and New York City, they're like, hey, look at the, these people in Columbus aren't as bad as you would think. You know, the next big food city. And then, and then I think, what, what, why would they title it that? The next big food city to watch. Like, there's people sitting in their, their office, their posh office in San Francisco, just watching cities and they're, their food habits. But that's the way foodies work. You know, they're, they're evaluating, are they in the trends and are they fitting in? But you know, um, as I think about an image of a foodie, this, a t-shirt comes to mind. And we have a picture here. 
Here's what it says if you're in the back. If love and kale is wrong, I don't want to be right. Now, how many of you have tried kale? It's gross. <laughs> All right? So the only reason you really wear that is you're trying to make a statement. This is a status symbol. You go down to the farmer's market and you wear this shirt. Everyone's like, hey, you belong here. Now, if you're wearing a shirt that's like, I love Ronald McDonald, I love Ronald McDonald, I'm a bit, and it has a big French fry on it, people might avoid you at the farmer's market. The foodie is a nice thing, but really what happens is it leads to debt because eating at nice restaurants is expensive and it can perpetuate class divides. It's often a status symbol, a way of people who are in the middle class, upper middle classes, to differentiate themselves from the blue collar, blue collar and poor people. Some of us have a relationship with food where it's a status symbol. Others of us, our relationship with food is more akin to stress eating. And I have an image here for this one. Stress is dessert spelled backwards. Now, I didn't know that. So you learn things every day. Last week, Jacob preached about temptation. And I love how he put it. He said, we're never tempted to do things we don't want to do. <laughs> and that's so true. Something I want to do when I'm stressed and in that season of weakness is just eat. Eating is like an emotional outlet for me. When we moved to Columbus to start the church, I gained 15 pounds the first few months. <laughs> Can you relate to that? When you're experiencing a financial hardship, relational difficulty, conflict at work, do you just, where's some unhealthy but good tasting food that I can go to and eat. Now, of course, the, the uh, effects of this aren't good as well. It can lead to unhealthy habits, and it can lead to a lack of addressing the stresses and emotions in our life. And as we think about stress and emotion, uh, many of us, we have another unhealthy relationship to food, and that is that we look to food, we feel the tension of wanting to eat in such a way that we can maintain a good body image. Now, I have an image here for this. Uh, this is Chris Hemsworth, a.k.a. Thor. This is Music and Fitness, a health magazine. And he says, build a beach body like Chris Hemsworth. And, you have to, uh, it says, and then it says, six pack secrets Sculpted a defined midsection. I'm just reading it all here for you. Fire up the grill. All right, so eating. Torch fat. Bigger arms and just four moves. All right, we can take that off the screen. All right. <laughs> Many of us feel this, this struggle because our culture says you need to look like this. Now, here's the thing about Chris Hemsworth. He, he's an actor he gets paid millions of dollars to look good. He has a, uh, his own chef who will make him amazing tasting food that's healthy for him. He has his own personal trainers. Literally, his job is to look good. And even then, we know that photo is photoshopped. It is not real. And yet, many of us, when it comes to food, we live in this tension. 
Because our world says you need to look like this. And if I could boil it down, just our struggle here when it comes to relating to food is how do we live in that tension? You go through the grocery store line and on one side is this magazine of Crips Hemsworth or J-Lo or whoever, some model, and on the other side is Reese's and a Butterfinger. And we live in anxiety and many shame. And the effects can lead to all kinds of health complications. And so the question before us today, again, as we're thinking of the power, the source of life, who can we connect to that can help us flourish? When we think to our bodily appetites, what practice can rehabit our heart? To find our status, our emotional health and well-being, and our image in Jesus. Jesus, in our passage, he says, when you fast, when you fast. I want to speak this morning about an often forgotten spiritual discipline of fasting. And really, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, I'm just, I, what I, there's so much we could say, but I want to make the case of why fast this morning. Why fasting should be a discipline in your life. And then we're going to close with just getting real practical, speaking to the heart about uh, an invitation for you and me in this coming season. So why fast and then an invitation for us all. Uh, first, why fasting and how, how it can rehabit our heart so that all the pressures and messages of our world don't point us to constant status-seeking, and anxiety. And in, in addressing why, I want to first talk about kind of like the, the, uh, the biblical idea of fasting, like when to fast, and then I want to get to the principle. So first, kind of the big why. Uh, why fast? A few reasons we see in the Bible. One reason that we fast is uh, for preparation, to prepare for a new season, to prepare for a new work, to prepare for some new change in your life. Jesus, earlier in Matthew chapter 4, before his public ministry here on the Sermon on the Mount, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Fasting was a means of preparing him for the work ahead. Another reason to fast is to seek God's wisdom, to seek wisdom. We see in the early church in Acts chapter 14, uh, some missionaries, a man named Paul and Barnabas, these were the first real missionaries of the church. And as they were traveling around the region, planting churches, they, would, they said they prayed and fasted when they appointed new leaders. Fasting as a means of seeking wisdom and guidance from God. Uh, others, and often in the Old Testament, we see fasting as a means of uh, lamenting, and repentance. Uh, Nehemiah was a man who, when he heard about the wall in Jerusalem being broken down, he fasted. He grieved, he lamented, but then he fasted in a way that sought God's grace in his life. When we find ourselves in habitual sin, fasting can be a, ma a means of honoring God by acknowledging where we've wronged. And then also, also fasting, one reason to do it is to seek deliverance. Many of the kings, David and other in the Old Testament, they would fast and ask for God's 
hand, God's work, God's power to go at work in their life. Fasting was a means of deliverance, repentance, wisdom seeking, and preparation. But what's the underlying principle here? If we boil it all down, why fast? What unites all of those things that fasting can bring? And here's what I want us to see. That fasting, it fosters a hunger for God. Fasting fosters a hunger for God. Again, it speaks to that source that we go to for life. In our text, uh, we see Jesus says this. He's instructing on fasting. He doesn't so much talk about the practice itself, but how not to do it and to do it. He says in verse 16, when you fast, do not Look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. Jesus is speaking to the reward here. Rewards were at the heart of Matthew chapter 6. At the heart of this sermon, Jesus is speaking to rewards. He says, when you give, don't give to be noticed. When you pray, don't pray so that everyone will see you. When you fast, don't put on the show. He says, that person has their reward. In contrast, he says, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others when you are fasting, but only to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Reward. So we have two types of reward we can be pursuing. Jesus is, he's giving a diagnostic contrast. What reward Does the person who fasts and prays publicly and does it so everyone else will see them, what reward do they receive? Well, it's it's pretty clear. The reward that they get is the approval and reputation and status of other people. Other people will look at them and say, wow, what a great prayer. Wow, look at them. Give to the poor. What a generous person. Fasting. Wow, I'm hungry and I want to eat all the time. They fast. And in their culture that was highly religious, these were like the straw. This is like wearing the kale t-shirt, right? Everyone looks at them and says, now that, that is somebody special. The reward they get is status. And status often leads to power Financial prosperity. They get their reward, Jesus says. Now the person who fasts and prays and gives and does it in secret, what reward do they get? People don't see it. What reward do they have? Jesus, it's clear the contrast he's giving. The reward they get is God. God is the reward. Jesus doesn't make promises. He doesn't say a reward means they will live a healthy life and never have problems. He doesn't say a reward means they're going to get a lot of money. Earlier, he says, blessed are the poor. He doesn't say a reward means they're not going to have any emotional hardship. He says, blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't say a reward means they're going to have power to get their will done. He says, blessed are the meek. What reward is here? It's the reward of God himself. Now, if we're to take an honest assessment 
and diagnostic of each of these rewards. What are we after? What reward is driving our actions and relationships? Are we seeking the award of status and reputation and wealth and prosperity? Or are we seeking the reward of God himself? This leads us to a really core idea that I want to say. When we live our lives, when we live our lives hungering for this, when this becomes the reward that we're after, it is akin to making our soul's habitat, habit, excuse me, our soul's hunger and appetite Big Macs and Whoppers and French fries. It tastes good in the moment, but the effects lead to on health. When we chase God and see him and his presence as the chief reward in our life, sometimes that doesn't feel amazing. Sometimes it means pain. Sometimes it's often just boring, but the effects are lasting love and joy and peace and flourishing. And we know this because this way of living is often based on the pleasure principle. This desire that we're, we, we recognize in our children, they want gratification, they want it immediately, but culturally, we've grown to tolerate this in adults. And this idea, if, if I just get what I want right now, I'll be happy. But the problem, the problem with living this way is things that often meet, bring immediate gratification, bring, bring a lasting pain and struggle. And things that often don't feel good in the moment can bring lasting peace and joy, and we know this when it comes to parenting. With my children, I'm trying to teach them this. Like, they have teeth. And if they want to have those teeth for a long time, they need to brush them. Now, when you're a child, like, brushing your teeth, at least that's what I'm reminded of now with my kids, is like the worst. It's like, oh, I could do a million other things with this two minutes in my life, but I have to brush my teeth. Oh, Dad. Horrible. Or, of course, eating vegetables. Now, some of you might have those kids that like to eat kale. And the rest of us secretly judge you. <laughs> but, you know, vegetables, they don't taste good. Now, I'm sorry if you're someone, John Jurevich, I see you drinking your drink. God has so worked in your life that you enjoy them. Praise the Lord. But... But for many of us, eating vegetables is a discipline that you have to do, and then over time you might end up enjoying it. Video games. My kids, if it were up to them, they would sit in front of a screen and just play games all day long. And that's not good for them. Just seeking the pleasure principle, instant gratification, will not bring lasting fun. It leads to destruction. Jesus presents another way, and thankfully, he's not someone who just lectures us about these things. He actually models them. 
In Matthew chapter 4, as I mentioned, Jesus, in preparation for his ministry, goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the middle of that, he meets what uh, Matthew calls the tempter, Satan. The passage will be on the screen. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And short little preview, this is where we're going next week in the coming season. We're going to look at the wilderness, pain, and God's providence in our life. Center back here. Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he was famished. I would imagine he'd be very hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answered them, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone. Now, briefly, why does Satan do this? Why does he say, Hey, Command the stones to be turned to bread. What's the problem here? Here it is. Satan is presenting a way of Jesus to experience God's promises and pleasure and providence without pain. Satan is casting a way of leading for Jesus that pursues the kingdom without the cross. And Jesus says, no. And the reason he says no, he says, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is saying life is more than our momentary appetite. Life is more than the pleasure principle. Life is more than just getting what we want in any particular moment. Men and women were not made to live for bread alone, for money alone, for comfort alone, for power alone, for status alone, for sex alone. In fact, what Jesus is doing, he's giving, he's he's just blowing our circuits on what it means to be a human being. Because our world will say, you're a human because you have desires and you need the, the pleasure principle says satisfy those desires. Jesus says, no, you're more than that. All All your desire underneath them, if you pull it back underneath, is a desire that can only be satisfied in God. Underneath every physical craving is a spiritual hunger that can only be satisfied in our maker. And so fasting is a practice, a discipline that rehabits our heart to that truth. It's a way of saying, I do not live by bread alone. I do not live by money alone, power alone, comfort alone, status alone. No, no, I am created in the image of God, a spiritual being, and underneath all of those longings is the need for God himself. Now, what does that mean for you and me as individuals and then for us as a church community If we could just take a minute, a few minutes, as we wrap this up, and and I want to invite you into something. We've, as I mentioned, been been looking at the Lord's Prayer, considering the power of prayer. And at Scarlet City, as we close out this sermon series, we don't want this to just be a sermon series that we did on prayer. But we want prayer to become a critical part of our culture as a church. And here's why, because we believe 
that we should be pursuing God's presence as the source of flourishing. Pursuing God's presence as the source of flourishing. Here's what myself and some of our staff and our elders and leaders here have been wrestling with. What does it look like to walk with God in faith in our culture and world today? We live in an increasingly post-Christendom world. Many of our friends, and maybe you personally, have been uh, deconstructing your faith, wrestling with God. Can Can I believe this? Can I trust the Bible? Is God real? Can justice happen? What does it look like for us to live this out in our day and age today? Because here's the thing, our world has been changing. Our world has been changing. And as we've thought about this, it, it led us to ask, well, what, what's God, what is really, what does God want? I mean, that's probably a good question, right? I mean, what does God want? At Scarlet City, we say, we're people joining God's story of transformation and renewal. Well, what's the God story? What's he doing? What's the whole point of it all? Is the point of it all that we would go to church, do some nice things, help a few people, and then just you know, survive? But what, what does Jesus really want to do? And here's what we believe. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole point is flourishing. That God wants you to not just know about his peace, but to experience his peace. That you flourish now and for eternity. And not just you individually, but us as a city, as a community, that there would be social, hear me, justice. That there would be social flourishing, social peace and shalom. This is God's work. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. Now, how do we experience that? What does it mean to link up with God? And we came to this radical idea. This is crazy. This is going to blow your circuits. How do we flourish in the way God intended? What do we need? Here's what we found. We need God. We need God. Not not just reading about God, not just sermons about God, not just uh, being in God's house. We need God himself. And in fact, one of the things, one pastor uh, in New York City, he made a great point. It stuck with me. If you've been hung, hanging out with me lately, I've probably said it to you. And in New York, it's a very post-Christian world. It's where the rest of us are going. And he said, you know, if all you needed was great preaching and really good music, New York would be experiencing this massive revival. I mean, you got pastors like Tim Keller there, <laughs> which if you haven't... Just listen to Tim Keller, do yourself a service. Amazing preacher of the word. You have churches like Hillsong. Amazing music. I'm, you know, a matter of taste in some ways, but it's good, it's good music. And, you know, those aren't the things that lead to revival in a post-Christendom context. What people need is to experience God himself. It doesn't matter our programs or buildings or sermons, or music, if people don't experience God, then what are we really offering? And if people are to experience God, guess what? We need to experience God. And I would say, as we think about it as a church, you know, my, my hope for you 
Like, what do I want for you? What do I want for me? What do I want for our, our children? What do, we, what do we want for our kids? It is to know God intimately and personally and to walk with him. That, they, that they're honest with God, that they share their struggles and doubts. That they go to God for healing. That they pray, that they fast. That they look to God's word, not just as some code book to figure out, but that it nourishes their soul. And so if we're to do this, we want to invite you into a season of formation. A season of formation, this Lent. And here's how you can do that. You, you, I, we mentioned it, there's a formation guide. Some of you haven't been listening to anything I've said. You've just been reading that, and that's okay. But you have a formation guide. And really, I, the idea here is just baby steps, right? We're, we're not saying, all right, all of us are going, moving to the desert and fasting for 40 days. No, just what's a step we all can take in our journey to, to be more open to God's presence in our life? Here's a few things we want to invite you to consider doing. First relates to prayer, and that would be to take these 40 days beginning this um, Ash Wednesday leading up to Easter, and would you commit to the daily office? The daily office is just a fancy way of saying praying a few times a day. Morning, afternoon, and evening. And we offer a few suggestions in that, but here's the big idea. It's not about how long you pray. It's not about how long you pray. You don't need to pray for an hour for God to hear it. You can pray for one minute. In fact, Jesus, the prayer he gives doesn't last that long. The Lord's Prayer, real short, simple. Short prayers on a consistent basis. In the morning, and then in the middle of your day, and then in the evening. And there's a few ideas that we share on how to do that well. But daily, the daily office is something that I, I've been practicing the past few years. Sometimes I forget. Often I forget. If you miss a day, you can start the next day. It's okay. Um, but the idea is consistent, shorter prayers. And then also we want to invite you to consider fasting this, this Lent season. Now, one way we're inviting everyone at Scarlet City to do that is on Wednesdays. Each Wednesday, we're going to have a Vesper service, which Vesper is, just means evening service. I don't know. We use the name, I, whatever. Evening service is what a Vesper is. And so we want to invite you here at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays to uh, worship with us in prayer and contemplation. And leading up to that, would you consider fasting? refraining from food. You could do that from sunrise to sunset, or you could do a 24-hour period. Or if you're in a season where fasting from food isn't good for you for health reasons, maybe give up something else, whether, whether it's social media or, or something else. But would you consider fasting this season on Wednesdays and then uh, Wednesday evening coming here and then celebrating with us, praying, celebrating God's presence and goodness with us? Also, scripture reading. We're going to read, invite you to read the Gospel of Luke in preparation for the resurrection. And it doesn't need to be overly complicated. You could read four chapters a week. Just four chapters a week. That means four days a week you could read one chapter. And if you're an overachiever, you're like, well, what about the other days? Well, you're allowed to go back and reread them. That works. But would you consider reading the Gospel of Luke, four chapters a week? And then two other things I want to highlight that aren't in your formation guide. One is we have journals. For you, I should have one with me. Anyone? Oh, Robert, can I steal your journal real quick? 
This right here? Oh, this one. Thank you. Right here. This is nothing fancy. You could write 2020 Lenten Journal right on it. It's amazing. Thanks, Robert. And we have them in the, I feel like a salesman here. <laughs> Sorry, this feels kind of weird. But we have them in the Welcome Center. Just write us a check for $100. We've blessed them. No, I'm kidding. Um, you can have it for free. You can, they cost us $1.50. So if you want to throw in a dollar or two, you're welcome to. You don't need to. We want you to just take the journal. And then lastly, this is a movement at Scarlet City. We're passionate about God's work in this city. And there's a movement called For Columbus. And in fact, Nick Nye's here. He's one of the leaders of it. Uh, Christine's husband, Scott Mallory, uh, isn't here. Totally calling Scott out on church. Man, Scott, where are you? Um, uh, and Scott uh, is a part of Leading for Columbus. And during this Lenten season, there's a, if you go to prayforcolumbus.org, did I get it right? Prayforcolumbus.org, you can get emailed uh, prayer updates every day and a devotional every day. And you can mark whether you want to fast every day as we lock arms, not just with the church here, but with the church around the city. So I want to invite you, you know, as we wrap up this series, thinking of the power of God, God as the source of life, would you join us in this season of Lent of really being open to God and his work? To do it through the uh, daily office, through fasting, through scripture reading, and through journaling if, if God leads.